Andrew Marr hosted an edition of Start the Week where he looked at the state of the Christian religion. Today we hear from Roman Catholic journalist Janine de Giovanni about the persecution of Christians in Iraq, Syria, Egypt and Gaza, which she describes in her book, The Vanishing. Janine, um, you make very clear in this book, and you write quite a lot, about being brought up and remaining a Catholic. Just tell us a little bit about your personal faith before we discuss the content of your book. Well, I was born into a family that were practicing Catholics. I'm the youngest of seven children. I went to Catholic school nearly all of my life. Um, came away from the church because I'm a, a rebel by nature. But as I was a war reporter for nearly 30 years, and as my father once said to me when I went off to my first war, there's no atheists in the foxhole. <laughs> and it, it sounds really cliche, but there have been several times when I was under fire where I thought I was going to die. And it is remarkable how your first thoughts, or my first thoughts, turn to prayer. Um, but really, my book my book deepened my faith because I would say I was a lap, lapsed Catholic and two things happened to me. One was COVID, where there was a time of great uncertainty and fear throughout the world for everyone, I think. We had no idea what we were going through. We had no idea how long it would take for it to end. And as a conflict analyst, I'm trained to see trigger warnings when societies break down. So the initial days of COVID, when people were storing food, taking money out of banks, general panic, um, really terrified me. And that was the moment when I first sat down to write. But, of course, I'd been gathering my research for 30 years. Mm. Um, I've been working in the Middle East for 30 years. I've always been drawn to the the study of the Christian communities there, but it really began to take shape in 2003, right before the invasion of Iraq, um, when I went to see the Assyrian and the Chaldean mm. communities live in the Nineveh plain. So without going into great detail about the differences, these are a series of non-Western Christian churches, really, that you're writing about, the Copts, the Chaldeans and others. And these they come from a slightly different tradition of Christianity going back, I guess, to the Eastern Roman Empire. Yes, and the the interesting thing about the Iraqi and, and some of the Syrian Christians, I, f I focused on four parts of my book, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and Gaza. And that's because I believe these are the four most vulnerable people. Lebanon, of course, has an enormous Christian community, but they're very assimilated. Um, each of the people I focused on are facing vast challenges to basically stay on this earth. Um, social scientists say that in 100 years, there will be no Christians in Iraq. Now, what does that mean? The, the map of Iraq, the kind of mosaic of the society, is made up of minorities. What has given it the richness? Are the Christians that once was a vibrant Jewish community, mm. the Jewish community of Baghdad, who were eradicated in the 50s and then completely wiped out in the 70s? Um, so the difference between them, basically, there's all... Um, the, the Christians in Iraq speak Aramaic, first of all, which is the language of Jesus Christ. So that in itself, when you go to yeah. one of their masses, gives you this extraordinary sense of their link to history. It must be These very eerie. Yeah, It's very beautiful, actually. Mm. It's very beautiful and it's very resonating. And I've the times when I go to masses, um, I mean, some of the things I remember the most clear 
are two things. One was right before the invasion of Iraq in Mosul, in an Assyrian church, when people were praying um, in Aramaic and crying because they were terrified of the invasion. And here's the other interesting point, Andy, is that Christians in the Middle East historically have supported dictators. Yeah. And why is that? Like, why did the Iraqi Christians feel safer under Saddam Hussein, a monster, right? And, and or, the Syrians under Assad, you point out. <laughs> under Bashar, who is yeah. a, a monster with a, a blood on his hands. It's because they feel safer. And also the Egyptians under Mubarak as well. Um, they feel safer. They Christians believe in rule of law, in a kind of unity, in, in a sort of um, continuity. And these dictators gave them that. And it's nothing is official, but there was a sort of pact with the devil that we will vote for you, we'll be a voting bloc. And at one point, you know, the Christians in Syria are 10%. In Egypt, they're between 6 and 10%. In Iraq, we have no idea. We knew there were 1.5 million in the Saddam days, but that was 40 years ago, the last census. Now... You know, we stopped counting the dead after ISIS, and some reckon there's about 150,000. So really what I'm trying to point out in my book is the dwindling and the vanishing of these ancient people. was the Bulgarian Voices Choir Angelite singing Blessed Are You, Lord. We now return to Andrew Marr and Janine de Giovanni examining Christianity in the Middle East. I was, I was going to ask you, Janine, you call the book The Vanishing and then its subtitle is The Twilight of Christianity in the Middle East. Um, is that a little bit over the top or is that a, a brutal statement of truth? I'm afraid it's a brutal statement, and I'm afraid unless we protect them, and I know you'll say, how can we protect them? But um, they are desperately in need of, they need to remain in their ancestral lands. Why is that? Well, it's interesting how many people I talk to, intelligent, well-educated people who didn't, don't realize that Jesus Christ was a Jew and that the, the prophets came from this part of the world, St. Thomas, the famous Gnostic 
um, Gospels or Jonah and the Whale in the Nineveh Plain of Iraq, the monasteries of Egypt. So here's the real dilemma. When the Islamic State rolled through in 2014, I was in Baghdad, not so far from Mosul. And the terror that spread through the community, as you remember, was, mm. was massive. So the Chaldeans and the Assyrians, their bishops pleaded with the people not to flee. But they were in a terrible dilemma because what do you do? They were going to be killed. I mean, ISIS's first edict was to kill Christians, to kill Christians and non-believers. So that also meant Shias. It also meant um, Sunnis who were not as reverent and pious as they were, who didn't believe in their form of Islam. It meant the Yazidis who also lived side by side with the Christians. But they really went after the Christian communities. So by the time I arrived in Nineveh, churches were trampled destroyed. Crucifixes had been pulled out. Mm. Eerie, I would walk over ruins of of churches where they had burnt the, the, the pictures of Our Lady and, you know, just absolutely ways of eradicating the communities mm. completely. They killed them. They sold the women. They put N over their door, N for Nazarene, which mean, which for me had terrible, terrible it's, it's like It's like, the, it's like the, 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 the star of David in Nazi times, yes, in a sense. exactly, yeah. but it was so chilling. And so despite this, the, their, their leaders had to plead with them, don't run away to Canada and the U.S. or Britain. Stay. If you stay, we will lose our ground and this and our is ancestral about, land. Sorry, Janine, to and jump course, in, but this is this is yeah, a, this sorry. is a, this is about a sense of place and understanding the specialness of these places. Um, and just to give people a sense of that, you visited the monastery of Ma, uh, of Marmatai, the monastery of Saint yes. Matthew in Iraq. Uh, just tell us a little bit about that place because the specificity of this book is very important. The specificity, I should say. Yes, you know, I say to people, even if they're not religious at all, there's places that you go to, and the minute you get there, you know you're in a sacred place, a holy place that has been where for thousands and thousands of years people have prayed and come together. And when I got there, it's a beautiful monastery built into a rock outside of Mosul. And when the when the Christians the Christians live in villages that are kind of like a string of pearls outside of Mosul, when ISIS came in, they fled, they took the basically the clothes on their backs and their documents, their pets, their children, got in their cars and drove out. Some of them went to this monastery. And even though when you when you climb to the top of it, you look out, you can see the road to Mosul, ISIS never got there. And no one really knows why. I've asked military people. They conquered all of the land around it, but they never got to this monastery. So families shelter there. Um, some of the priests and deacons had brought sacred books that they rescued from the Gospels that they rescued from Mosul as the churches were burning down. And when I went back again after ISIS had fallen, the people were there and they were celebrating and they had brought food. And I, I said to them, what are you celebrating? And they said, life, that we are alive. Mm. But they were caught in this terrible dilemma of... um Really, with all four countries I looked at, the same thing. Their fear of being eradicated by radical groups, which are rising. Okay, ISIS might be conquered, but they're not gone. They're absolutely not gone. There are more Iranian-backed Shias, uh, Iranian-backed militias throughout the region who they fear. There's Turkish airstrikes. Um, In Egypt, the cops are terribly, terribly 
discriminated against. They can't, they can't yeah. be elected to high. I wanted Sorry. to I wanted to ask you about Egypt actually because this, as you point out in the book, was actually a majority Christian country until the 14th century. Now about 10 percent, perhaps, are members of the Coptic Church, which is obviously different from the Catholic Church. Their churches look different and the rituals are different, but they've got their own bishops and archbishops. And there's been a kind of general feeling that, like quite a lot of Christians in the Middle East these days, they're a relatively elite group. But in the book, you talk about the, the Zabalin or the garbage collectors of, of Egypt, who are, in fact, also Coptic Christians. So just tell us a little bit about those. They're remarkable people. So they live in a suburb outside of Cairo, which is literally called Garbage City. And the Christians traditionally have collected the trash because they use pigs. And of course, in Islam, you can't, you know, pigs are filthy animals. And they use the pigs to help them collect the trash. But these days, they've actually become entrepreneurial because of recycling. And they have, they become so sophisticated in the way that they recycle that people have come from all over the world to study how they do this. But that still does not make them a part of society. And of course, these are, these garbage collectors are a very unique part of society because they're, they're socioeconomically a very mm. low class. The Christians throughout Egypt, you know, let's say you're a Christian, a wealthy Christian living in Heliopolis in Cairo. You go to the French Lycée, your family owns factories. They might not experience the same kind of discrimination that I saw in Minya, which is a upper Egypt province where most of the Christians live. There, it's a very different thing. Mm-hmm. There, their churches are burnt down. There, well, throughout Egypt, you know, you're not allowed to build a church. It's, it's part of the the law, which many um, Christian lawyers are trying to fight. They can't join the higher ranks of government or of the army. And of course, in Egypt, the army is an arm of the government. I just want to say very quickly, this is, this is in many ways a doleful book, but you say it's a book about dying communities, but also about faith. I wrote it so the people I documented would never disappear. They're here on those pages. Janine de Giovanni's The Vanishing. Fast, precious. 
Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his short God spots, and today he describes coming out to play. I've achieved the ultimate accolade. The kids next door rang the bell the other day and asked if I was coming out to play. Yes, at last I have become as a little child. Believe me, it's not easy getting away from being a grown-up, but at least now no one will be calling me dead mature. Unfortunately, I had to decline the invitation, much as I would have liked to have played football with them, especially since they're five-year-old girls and I might actually have won. 
No, I'm afraid I'd grown up stuff to do at my desk, which had to be done there and then. Sadly, they eventually stopped pleading with me and went out and enjoyed themselves. They forgave me. And I'm not sure that either God or I will find it just as easy to forgive. You see, the greatest gift you can give a child is time. Mature blessings to you. Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the authorised version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 101. It's followed by Lord of the Rings, Rivendell, played by the London Philharmonic Orchestra, with the choir London Voices, and conducted by, and also written by, Howard Shaw. I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way, O, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbour, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. remember the people of Ukraine in our prayers 
we hear the Ukrainian National Academic Choir, Dumka, singing Mikola Leontovich's setting of The Lord's Prayer, directed by Yevhen Savchuk.
I'm a w a i